Go ahead, if you will, and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 18. John chapter 18. We will be reading verse 38 for our congregational reading this morning. John chapter 18, verse 38. When you found your place, I know you just stood. Go ahead and stand back up for me. It's a short passage. Remain standing for a time of prayer following, then you can have a seat. John chapter 18, verse 38. What is truth, said Pilate. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we do love you. We thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for this church, for its heart in ministering to others and leading others to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this team that just went to West Virginia. Lord, thank you so much for Miss Tara and her heart to serve you and lead these children. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak mightily through, this, through me this morning. Father, I'm a, I'm a wicked man, undeserving of preaching your gospel. But Father, I just pray that you'd speak mightily through me. Lord, help us to see that we have the inerrant truth of Scripture. We have your word. Father, I pray that you would use it this morning to reach people. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, anyone watching online that doesn't know you, Lord, today might be the day they come to know you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A little over a month ago, uh, 40 teens and adults made a trip to Florida for our annual summer camp. And this is a trip, summer camp's an annual thing. We go every year. This year we went to Florida, and it's around where I grew up. And we go there because there's, Florida is home to thousands of natural freshwater springs. I don't know if you've all had an opportunity to go. There will be a pip picture that pops up here in just a second, and I, I want to show you that picture because I want to explain to you a little bit more in detail about what we did. But we had the opportunity one day to go to Blue Springs in Gilchrist County. And uh, this, the dock that's there is no longer there. That dock was ruined in a hurricane a while back. But many of these springs... Are, are at one time were privately owned. A lot of them now are state owned. And they, you, state park you pay to go into. You can camp at these state parks. You can go swimming. And this particular spring, as you see right there, oh, is, am I not working? I'm not staying from the mic? Okay. This particular spring is, has a beach entrance that you can walk in. You can wade and swim. And then you see where the spring gets a little darker there. And that's where the head spring is, pretty deep. And on the other side, you can kind of wade over there as well. Well, we were all out there, and we were hanging out and spending some time together. And I decided that I'd had enough standing in the sun. So I swam across the spring, and I stood over there kind of to the right of that dock where those trees are so I could get in the shade. And a bunch of teens ended up coming over there. And as we were sitting there, a man made his way over there to us. And he was making some small talk, and to be quite honest with you, I couldn't really understand what he was saying. And you know how when you, you're talking to somebody that you can't really understand, you just kind of smile and nod, and you know, yeah, okay, I, I hear you, but I don't really hear you. And as he made his way over, he's continuing to talk, and he eventually asks Daniel, who was with us, he said, can I borrow your mask? He wanted to go swim in the water to be able to see a little bit clearly. And Daniel obliged and gave him his mask. He put the mask on, he went to go swim, and right before he did, and I'm not making fun of the man, I just want to show you how he was talking, right before he went under the water, he turned back around to us and he said, if I'm not back in two minutes, call 911. <laughs> so we understood that, we got a big laugh out of that. 
he swam for a minute and he came back and he continued on. He was making small talk with us. And I don't remember exactly what he said, but at some point he made a comment about truth. So it gave me the opportunity to lead into a gospel conversation. So I said to this man, I said, well, what is truth? He said, truth is whatever you say it is. And I said, well, so hang on. I said, you don't believe in absolute truth. You believe truth is whatever I say it is and whatever you say it is. He said, absolutely. And I said, well, there is absolute objective truth. No, there's not. Truth is whatever you say it is. I said, well, let me ask you something. I said, what's two plus two? He said, whatever you say it is. I said, so you don't believe there's an answer to that question? He said, no, it could be three for you and five for me. And I said, well, if it's three for me and five for you, we're both wrong. And the truth is, it's still four. He said, I'm not going to argue with you. And I said, I'm not arguing with you either. I said, we're just having conversation. We're just talking. And so I backed off a little bit because he met me with such a strong response. And a few minutes later, he made another comment that I perceived to be a, a spiritual conversation. So I asked him what his thoughts were on Jesus Christ being the Son of God. And he rather strongly came back. He said, Jesus Christ is not the Son of God. And he got mad. So I backed off again. And we exchanged some pleasantries and talked for a little bit before going our separate ways. I want to tell you that here we do have objective truth. We absolutely have objective truth. And here, talking to this man, we have a crisis of perhaps the most fundamental of all human intellectual questions. And that is, what is the nature of truth itself? You see, the man that we were talking to, he's not in the minority of thinking. Many people believe the way this man believed. That truth is relative, that there's no objective truth, and it's whatever you say it is. But uh, this man, 500 miles from here, there's men and women in Candler, North Carolina that feel the same way. This man who responded angrily to my question, what is truth, because he realized he had been caught and could not justify what he was saying regarding the question, what is two plus two, you and I cannot live without objective truth. Everyone believes in objective truth, by the way, and I can prove it using a couple of analogies. Let's say, for example, you finish your work week. You've worked a 40-hour week. Maybe you've even worked some overtime. And you go to your employer to get your check. I realize that many of you probably get paid by direct deposit. But for the sake of argument, you go to your employer and you say, I'm here to get my check. And he puts his check, this check in your hand and you open it. And you're expecting $1,000. And you open that check up and you look at it and it's a $100 check. And you say, hang on a minute. This isn't right. I'm owed $1,000. This check is only for $100. And then your employer looks at you and says, well, that's your truth. My truth is you were only owed $100. You'd say, no, 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 no. It is objectively true that I am due the wages that are owed to me. You would say it's objectively true that I am owed this money. What if we flip that around? You go to the bank. You walk up to the teller and you say, I want to withdraw $10,000 from my checking account. Teller pulls up your account, and she says, well, um, oh, you've actually got a negative balance. Um, you can't withdraw $10,000. And you say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. <laughs> well, unless you decide to rob that place, you're not leaving there with $10,000, <laughs> which I don't suggest, but if you do, give me some money before you go to prison. <laughs> 
So we're going to begin this sermon at John chapter 18, verse 38, where Pilate asks Jesus, what is truth? But let's look back at what transpired leading up to this point. So we know that Jesus has been arrested. Jesus has been brought before Annas, the, the high priest. So he was actually the former high priest. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And his, he, he still yielded a ton of power and authority, which is why Jesus was brought to him first. So he goes to, to Annas, and we see uh, right before they go in that Peter remains outside, and we see Peter's first denial of Jesus Christ. And then we see Annas question Jesus, and they don't like his response. Jesus answers him, and they physically strike Jesus. And Jesus says, well, hold on. He said, if I've answered wrongly, then give evidence against me. But if rightly, then why do you hit me? Then we continue reading on, and we see where Peter denies Christ twice more, fulfilling prophecy. And now we get to where Jesus is sent to Pontius Pilate. Jesus is brought before Pilate. Now, Pilate was a Roman prefect, which means he was a, he was a judge. Pilate was responsible for ordering executions. He was responsible for overseeing various construction projects. Pilate would have been responsible for overseeing the collection of taxes. Overall, Pilate's position was not one of tremendous authority, but he did have power. His words certainly carried weight. And overall, in this passage, we're going to see where Pilate was reluctant to have Jesus executed, but we should not confuse that for thinking that Pilate was a good man. Pilate was not a good man. Pilate ruled unjustly. He ruled cruelly. He was known to, we have secular accounts of where Pilate would have people beaten. He would have people killed. He was especially cruel and unjust. He would, uh, he would, he, he led a lot of times how we see people around the world now in positions of authority. He led out of what was in his own best interests. Okay, so beginning in verse 28 of chapter 18, the Bible says this. Then Jesus led Caiaphas, led, led, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So in this sham of a trial, Jesus is now brought before Pilate, and he's being shuffled around, and they arrive at the headquarters of Pilate. And it says here, there's some interesting language here in John that if we're not careful, we can read over. It says that they didn't enter the headquarters of Pilate because they would become defiled and unable to eat the Passover. So I want you to think about that for just a minute. These Jews who were involved in this sham of a trial were worried about not entering the headquarters of Pilate because it would defile them, but they weren't, weren't worried about convicting and condemning an innocent man to die. They weren't worried about outright rejecting the Messiah. You know what Jesus called that in Matthew chapter 23? He called that straining on a gnat, but swallowing a camel. And sometimes we're guilty of that in the 21st century, aren't we? We're guilty of straining on a gnat, but swallowing a camel. We'll split and argue and divide over trivial matters, things that don't really matter, while ignoring the fact that perhaps someone, not here, but someone is not preaching the word of God the way it should be preached. Someone is is watering it down and not preaching the gospel. We will strain on a gnat, but swallow a camel. So because of their refusal to enter, Pilate comes out to them. And he says to them in verse 29, So Pilate came out to them and said, What charge do you bring against this man? 
They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. All right. So the Jews are loving life right now. Okay. Now don't, don't get this confused. They did not like Pilate. There, there are accounts of Pilate where they have had their run-ins with him. They did not like Pilate. But they're using Pilate to get what they want. So Pilate comes out. He wouldn't have been a dumb man. He, he asks them, he says, what charge do you bring against this man? And they respond, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Now think about something like that this day and age. You're standing before a judge. Charges are brought against you. Don't you want to hear the charges against you? Absolutely. You want to hear the charges against you. Like I said, Pilate wasn't a dumb man. They show up and he says, what charges do you bring against this man? And they say, ah, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. Well, yes, I see that. Imagine Pilate standing there. I see he's bound. You have a criminal standing before me. I'm asking you what charges you bring against him. And they completely avoid the question. The Jews were essentially saying, listen, Pilate, we don't really need to explain ourselves to you. We've already condemned this man. All we need you to do is to be the executor of our sentence. We don't have to explain ourselves to you. We don't have to tell you what the charges are. He's already a condemned man. So Pilate responds in verse 31. Pilate told them, You take him and judge him according to your law. You take him and handle it. I don't want to be bothered with it. Now, it's not recorded here in John, but Luke does give us a little bit more detail on the matter. They do eventually tell Pilate that Jesus is being accused of perverting the nation and refusing to pay taxes to Caesar. But right now, Pilate just simply says, you take him, judge him according to your own law. You do with him what you want. Right then and there, the Jews had their permission to do what they wanted. Right then and there, they could have left and executed Jesus. But they said this, listen to this, in verse 31, we, it continues, It is not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this in verse 32, so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, indicating what kind of death he was going to die. So let's talk about that for a few minutes, because that's very important here. The, the Jews are, again, they're picking and choosing when they would ask for permission to put someone to death. They didn't always do this, by the way. Okay, they were supposed to get Roman authority, permission from the Roman authorities to put someone to death. They didn't always do this. We actually have a biblical account of them not doing this later on. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, the first Christian martyr, was preaching the gospel. He was witnessing to these folks, and he said, Listen, you all have received the word of God from angels, and you have outright rejected it. And what they do? They got angry. They took Stephen outside, they cast him down, and they stoned him. They killed him. They didn't seek any Roman authority on that matter. They just took it upon themselves to do it. So here, they ask for permission. They essentially get their permission. Pilate tells them, judge him according to your own laws. Do with him what you will. And they say, well, it's not lawful for us to condemn a man to death. They did this so that the word of God would be... Uh, would be fulfilled, the words of Christ. There's, in John chapter, excuse me, in, in, yes, in John chapter 8, Jesus actually said, I will be lifted up. That was God, Jesus, prophesying what kind of death he would, he would die. This was not saying, 
He'll be lifted up as far as words of encouragement. This was not saying he would be lifted up as a matter of prayer. He was simply indicating what type of death he was going to die. You see, when Pilate gave them permission and said, do with him what you will, if they had taken him out right then, they would have cast him down. When you were stoned, you were cast down and rocks would have begun to be thrown at your head. But not Jesus. Jesus says, I will be lifted up. So they say, it's not lawful for us to for us to put a man to death. We have to have your permission. This was all to fulfill prophecy that Jesus Christ would be lifted up. You know what? We should find hope in that. We should find hope in that. That Jesus Christ, his words are true. That he is sovereign over every single detail in our lives. I don't know what you're going through right now at home. I don't know what your work life is like. I don't know what your home life is like. I don't know what kind of struggles you're going through. What kind of... but. Jesus Christ is sovereign over every single detail. Continue to be faithful. He, he will persevere. Continue to be faithful. This is a fulfillment of prophecy. Christ is sovereign over every single detail. And I actually, I had heard part of this story before, but I really want to share this with you because it really drives this point home. There was a professor at Westmont College who set out, he said, I want to figure out what the likelihood would be of one man fulfilling the major prophecies of Christ. So he took his classes, there's 12 classes. You can find this story online. It's a pretty interesting story. He took 12 classes of about 600 students, and they took eight major prophecies of Christ, and they broke them down. They examined them in great detail. Even the most skeptical students at the end of this agreed that their estimates were conservative enough. They took eight prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, and they gave them back to the professor. The professor said, you know what, I'm not done. I'm going to make this even more conservative than you have already made it. So then he encouraged other scientists and skeptics to examine the findings and see if the conclusions were more than fair. Finally, after seeing that they were, he sent his findings to the American Scientific Affiliation. And after they examined his findings, they found that the calculations were dependable and accurate in regard to all of the material presented. After only examining, again, those eight prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, they estimated, listen to this, that the probability of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies would be 10 to the 17th power. That is a 10 with 17 zeros, by the way. Now, this is the part of the story I'd heard before. They say if you take that number in silver dollars and you take that many silver dollars and you put them in an area the size of Texas, okay, I don't know if you're aware of how big Texas is, the landmass there, that many silver dollars in an area the size of Texas, it would, take, it would be two feet deep, two feet deep in an area the size of Texas. The probability of one man fulfilling those eight prophecies would be the same as if you took one of those silver dollars, colored it red, blindfolded a man, told him he could walk as far and wide throughout Texas as he possibly could, and pick, bending over and picking up that one red silver dollar. Now, I don't know how many of you all like odds. I don't know how many of you all watch the Mega Millions, how it rose to over a billion dollars. I think the odds in that I heard on a commercial were one in 302 million. Those are 
far better odds than you would ever have with this. By the way, they say when something reaches 10 to the 15th power, the possibilities are, are, are so limited that it's, it's impossible to think it would ever happen. There are many more than eight prophecies, though, however. Many, many more. So this professor, he wanted to take it a step further. He took 48 prophecies. He said, let's see what the number would be, what the conclusion would be, if we took these 48 prophecies that one man would fulfill them. The odds came back to 10 in the 157th power. The professor gave an illustration of this, and this kind of blows my mind, because you, you can't, we, we cannot possibly fathom a number that large. He said, if you took electrons, which are smaller than atoms, by the way, he said that 10 to the power of 15 atoms laid side by, electrons laid side by side would make up just one inch of atoms. Then he said if you were to count 250 electrons each minute, day and night, it would take you 19 million years to count a line of electrons an inch long. The professor concluded this, and I, I think they're going to have this uh, quote up on the screen for you to see as well because it's important that you hear this and see this. This is what the professor concluded at the end of this study. Any man who rejects Christ as the Son of God is rejecting a fact proved perhaps more absolutely than any other fact in the world. That's the Christ you and I serve. Verse 33, then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? So this was very likely the second meeting here between Jesus and Pilate. Uh, John does not record this. Luke records another meeting with King Herod in between these two meetings with Pilate. Nonetheless, in this uh, recording here in John, Pilate asks Jesus, he summons him into his, into his headquarters, and he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you asking this, in verse 34, on your own, or have others told you about me? So this is important. Jesus was asking uh, Pilate who he was asking from because the answer is going to be different according to who it's coming from, right? If Pilate asked Jesus, listen, are you the king of the Jews? If he asks it like this, if he says, are, are you a political king? Are you someone who opposes Rome? Do you oppose Caesar? Are you here to cause problems? Well, the answer certainly would have been no. But if he's asking it according to the Jews, are you king? Jesus, are you king? Are you king of the Jews? Are, are you the Messiah? Are you the Christ? Well, the answer certainly would have been yes. Then Pilate asks another question. And he says here in verse 35, I'm not a Jew, am I? Pilate replied, Your own nation and the chief priests handed you over to me. What have you done? That's a pretty interesting question to ask Jesus, isn't it? What have you done? He's saying, listen, there's a mob of angry people out there. They want you dead. You've clearly done something. What have you done? Think about all the ways that Jesus could have answered that question. Think about this for a second. Think about how Jesus could have answered this question. Well, Pilate, what have I done? Uh, well, I, I've lived without sin. I'm blameless, even though there's a mob of angry people out there blaming me. Um, well, let's see. I healed the sick. 
I gave sight to those who were blind. Oh, yeah, I even walked on water. I turned water into wine. I fed the multitudes of thousands with only a couple of fish and barley loaves. I confronted those who were living wrongly and I showed them grace. I changed lives for the better. I taught the truth so very clearly that it left people who were listening in awe of what I said. I served others rather than waiting to be served. I calmed storms. Even the wind and the waves obey me. Oh yeah, I also raised the dead to life. That's what I've done. That's how Jesus could have answered those questions. That's how he could have responded to Pilate in this situation. Instead, he responds in verse 36 and he says this. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. You are a king then, Pilate asked. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. And believe you me, if it were, you'd be knowing about it right now. Because the people who serve me, the people who follow me, they would be willing to fight. Remember Peter had just cut off someone's ear a little while ago in the Garden of Gethsemane to prevent Jesus from being apprehended. He's saying, if my kingdom were of this world, if I was interested in the same stuff you're interested in, we'd be fighting right now. But my kingdom's not of this world. See... We aren't concerned with the things that you're concerned with, Pilate. That's what Jesus is saying here. We aren't concerned at all with the same things. I'm not interested in political parties or wars or conflicts. Now, Pilate was probably pretty happy to hear this. I mean, let's be honest. Pilate was probably pretty happy to hear this. Remember, Pilate's allegiance was to Rome. He now should think to himself, well, I have nothing to fear. Uh, Rome is not in any present danger from this king. Now, we can't be confused about this, though. Pilate's comment here was probably not a genuine comment. Verse 37, when he says, you are a king then, that could be better understood by what we see in the King James Version. King James Version, Pilate says, art thou a king? It would be like us looking down on Jesus and saying, you, you're a king? Bound before me? You're a king? That's what Pilate meant. Think about this. Earthly kingdoms are based upon rule and dominion, armies and battles, self-interests and self-preservation. But Jesus' kingdom was based upon love and holiness, sacrifice and humility. His kingdom is over any earthly kingdom. So Jesus responds and says, You say that I'm a king. I was born for this. And I have come into the world for this to testify to the truth. Everyone who hears the truth, who is of the truth, listens to my voice. Some versions of your Bible will say, Jesus says, you say rightly that I am a king. Jesus admits to being a king, just not the kind of king the Jews were expecting. Charles Spurgeon says here that Jesus doesn't speak of opinions, views, or speculations, but of infallible truths. Jesus says, I was born into this world a king. He says, I bear witness of the truth. I am the truth. My kingdom is of the truth. It is amazing to me. I want you to think about this for just a second. I know we're running out of time. I want you to think about this. It is amazing to me that Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man, that he's standing before Pilate, and when Pilate questions him, he doesn't, he doesn't plead with Pilate for his life. He doesn't plead with Pilate to have mercy on him. He doesn't plead with Pilate to save him, 
but he pleads with Pilate to recognize the truth. He is standing literally in front of the embodiment of truth. And ultimately, at least here, rejects it. What Pilate says to him, what is truth? Pilate wasn't sincerely asking what truth was. Because after this, he left him. It was as if Pilate was saying, what is truth? And then he turns and leaves. He turns and leaves. When confronted with the truth, we have two options. We can either accept that truth or we can do like Pilate and turn and reject it. You know what Pilate had placed his truth in? Pilate's truth was placed in Rome, in Caesar, in Roman soldiers, Roman guards, the Roman Empire and their authority, political power. Those were his, his truths. He said, what is truth to Jesus to essentially dismiss him and say, I find no fault in him. This man presents no threat to us whatsoever. We began today with the comment, what is truth? This day and age, many people are asking the same question. Remember, we just talked about a man a little while ago who asked this question. And many today are asking it from the perspective of personal experience or preference or from their perspective alone. They believe all truth is personal and individual. There is no truth about God, only your truth and my truth. Remember 2 plus 2 equaling 3 or 5? R.C. Sproul said this in a sermon once. He said there are people who live their entire lives and they don't spend five minutes actually searching for truth. I'm going to close with this. Many of you might know Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson is, a, is an intellectual individual. He does not profess Christ. You've maybe seen some interviews with him or some podcasts with him. A very brilliant man. If you've ever had an opportunity to listen to him, a very brilliant man. He is the kind of person who could probably sit down with himself and explain something he didn't understand to himself. That's the kind of intellectual mind this guy has. He actually said this, and I want, I want you to hear this. I think they're going to put this up on the screen as well. This is great. He said, it isn't that the Bible is true. It's that the Bible is the precondition for the manifestation of truth, which makes it way more true than just true. That is a man who doesn't profess Christ. I believe the Lord is working in his life, and he, he just took a job with the Daily Wire, and I, so I think he'll be around people who, are, who, who know the Lord, and I think he's very close. But think about how we were just talking a little while ago about how Christ is sovereign over everything. Christ is sovereign over every detail. That's a man who doesn't profess Christ who just said that about the Word of God who said that it is the precondition for the manifestation of truth. In other words, this is the embodiment of truth. We have the truth, ladies and gentlemen. We have the truth. God's truth, the word of truth, the infallible word of God. This has been tried and tested, and it's never failed. Let's pray.